what triggered this for you? Like, what was like the, like you wanting to learn about like motherhood, mothers? Let's talk about it. That's what everyone wants to know when I tell them about this podcast. It's always some variation of what got you interested or why this topic. But what they're really asking me is, what are you doing? You're in your early 20s, the part of your life that's least encumbered by such life-changing decisions like whether or not you want to have a child or be a mother. So why are you now asking questions about babies and motherhood? But conception's a funny thing. It means so much and comes from so little, and it almost always starts with a completely normal question. Do you want to go out with me? Thoughts on marriage. Do you want to have children someday? Mm, don't you think we should start with drinks first? Okay, red or white What's wine. What's your favorite color? Favorite do you movie. Want the chicken or the fish. Favorite book. What's your should star sign? This back to my place? Are, Are you, you on the pill? pill? Do you have a do condom? You want to do you want to move in? Do you want to have a baby? Did you want to have a baby? Do you really want a baby? And just like that, the seed is planted. I think of it like that sliding doors thing, when completely everyday moments spark life-altering chain reactions. Most of them you don't notice until hours, weeks, nine months down the line, and some you have to really look for in hindsight, but others you slam into. And this immaculate conception was the latter. And like I told Literally, my friend Hannah... It's the weirdest, like, three-second thing that happened. We were in the local supermarket. I was helping my mother work through a family grocery list, pushing the trolley along behind her as she bagged and crossed things off. You could and honestly, we must have only been in there for five minutes, not even ten, because we barely made it out of the fruit and veg section and into the dairy aisle at the back of the shop when it happened. I saw a baby. A chubby, squishy, adorable baby held in its mother's arms and you could tell she was its mother because it was the kind of confidently casual hold that only a mother could master. Its back was pressed against a chest, its chunky little legs dangling over her forearms. It was a bundle of soft rosy cheeks and big glassy eyes that stirred something in the most basic part of my tiny pea brain and set off the three-second tableau that has burned one question into my memory. Are you feeling clucky? This is a podcast about the moments when one of life's biggest decisions and everything that goes into it is condensed down into a throwaway line and squarely at empty wounds. I'm Davina Nowak. Welcome to Feeling Classy. If you're in the possession of a uterus, you've probably received the message at some point in your life that having children isn't just a choice. It's your duty, and deviation from that duty is not an option. We're told motherhood is a woman's ultimate, divinely ordained role in life, and then in the same breath, we're warned that being childless is the worst, most abnormal and selfish thing a woman can do, and no one wants to be the barren spinster. You gotta have a baby! They're relentlessly asking other women, oh, when are you going to have them? When are you having your second one? I cannot go anywhere without someone asking me if I'm going to have children. And it was always with a little tone of, why don't you want them? The magical, happy miracle. Experiencing pregnancy. Okay, it's baby time. Pants off, Bing. I'm pregnant. There it is. Little pink plus sign is so unholy. We all remember Julia Gillard being labelled unfit for leadership because 
she was, quote, deliberately barren. I thought to myself, they were young women. Mm. There's still a lot, lot of life left. You know, they might change their mind when you find the right man. Being a mother has made me feel so beautiful. Turns out, people like pregnant. In fact, we like pregnant so much that there's a whole realm of public policy that's built to entice women into motherhood. Natalism, or pronatalism. And trust me, it's as unsexy as it sounds, but I'll try and upsell it. Pronatalism is the backbone of policies that try to encourage women to bear children. Lots and lots of children. Not just because you want to, but for the national good. Oh yeah. And if the honour of doing it for king and country isn't enticing enough, how about getting incentives like welfare or maternity leave or cheap childcare? Or how about limiting access to contraception or criminalising abortion? Oh, no, no, I don't like that at all. Well, tough, because even in Australia, we've had pronatalist schemes kicking since 1912, when the government introduced our very first baby bonus. To encourage women to have more children, the advertising of contraceptives was banned. Baby health centres were set up, and newspapers and magazines encouraged mothers to rely on professional advice about child raising. New mothers were also offered a £5 maternity allowance to cover their medical expenses. Admittedly, it wasn't much, and it was only for white mothers, but hey, you didn't need to be married, so for the times, that's pretty neat. Fast forward to the 2000s when the Howard government introduced a much bigger $4,000 baby bonus and the then-treasurer Peter Costello encouraged women to have... One for your husband and one for your wife and one for the country. I mean, gird your loins, ladies. The policy has chopped and changed since then, but that kind of encouragement can make motherhood look pretty good. But let it be known, even though these institutional aphrodisiacs say that the best baby for the country is the homegrown baby, the homegrown baby is a, you guessed it, white baby. But if you can set aside the nationalism and mild eugenics of it, blessed be the fruit. Now, I'm not saying that my mother is a radical pronatalist, even though, like most daughters in their 20s, I'm a seasoned rodeo clown for dancing around baby-themed questions. But it doesn't negate the fact that she asked it. Oh, no, no, I need to ask you a question when we get back to the car. Really? Yes. Sorry, Mum. You remember a few months ago, we were in Coles and we were shopping and I saw a baby and I said, oh, how cute or whatever. And then you said something. Do you remember what that was? Mm. Yeah, I said, I said, are you feeling clucky? Yes, you did. Now, I want to know why you said that. Oh, I don't know. It's just something I just, just <laughs> blurted out. It's probably because, you know... You're a girl and, and, and you're at that time in your life. Anyway. Okay, so biologically, she's not wrong. Your early to mid-twenties are your fertility prime, well before the dread of fertility cliff that experts talk about, which, by the way, is only partially true. It's mostly hammed up pronatalism, but still, emotionally, financially, psychologically, absolutely not at that time in my life. But I digress. But you hear people say it. Yeah. You hear people say it when they're, you know cuddling a little newborn baby or or just as, as you do that day admire this cute little baby 
Yeah. It's just something that people just tend to say. And I, they say it to girls. I don't think it would be said to, to guys. But it's just Like most things, teasing women for wanting babies has a long history. Phrases like feeling clucky have been recorded way back in 1851. But its roots go even further back to the Middle English word broody, which to this day describes hens who pretty much go into heat and want to hatch a clutch of eggs. Broody hens act very strange. They literally puff up because their body temperature increases and they will sit on any and every egg they can find, whether or not it's fertilised. They'll become incredibly protective and will make some very strange noises. And they do that quiet little cluck. And their growl. There's the growl. And will hardly move, not even for food or water, until their job is done. That's a broody hen. And naturally, because that's the way society goes, we've linked the behaviour of simple-minded poultry to that of human women. And maybe it's only mildly insulting that a reference to hormonal chickens is how we say, oh, she wants a baby ASAP. But it doesn't explain the fact that something actually happened in my brain that made me say what I said and made mum say what she said. It's got to be the hormones, those pesky woman hormones. I, I don't think it is necessarily correct to think that there's this kind of build up of hormonal signals whereby you suddenly reach some point wherever it be where you have this overwhelming desire to have babies and I find it really interesting and kind of infuriating we blame them when we've got hardly any and heaps. <laughs> That's the voice of Dr Sarah Mackay. She is the neuroscientist to find if you want to know anything about the female brain. She's quite literally written the book on it. Sarah's been on a bit of a one-woman crusade to improve our understanding of the female brain beyond blaming hormones. Sorry. And although it's not all about the hormones, there are a few key chemical reactions happening when we feel clucky. Someone who's feeling clucky, what will be happening in their brain? Well, the data's going to be coming into their brain. They're going to see this little baby. And depending perhaps where they are in there, having the baby journey, they're probably feeling a lot of desire. So that's an awful lot of want and need to reach a particular goal. Of the billions of pathways and billions of neurons firing across the brain in each split second, there are three big names involved in producing the warm and fuzzy feelings of cluckiness, glutamate, dopamine, and oxytocin. I think it's my analogy is glutamate does most, and, and GABA, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, do most of the processing in the brain. It's almost as if there's an orchestra and a conductor and this piece of orchestral music has been composed, which is a symphony, say. It's a really complex process and then that's eventually played through the radio and then modulators like dopamine and noradrenaline and oxytocin kind of come in and it's almost like they turn up the volume turn down the volume or turn up the bass or down the bass or the balance the message coming out is the same but it's kind of allowing you to tune in and out of different aspects it the conductor she's doing the work to keep everyone on beats and sounding lush and symphonic and then neuromodulators like dopamine. She's giving us pleasure, like the tinkling of a piano. Very satisfying. And it works in two ways. The negral striatal pathway that's involved with movement. And the other one is this pathway which is more involved with kind of reward and wanting and liking and desire. And it's very much involved with getting us up and moving towards something that we haven't already got. And it's- As for oxytocin, she's a little bit softer. She makes you fall in love like a humming string section floating all through the piece, warming everything up, but she really comes to the fore at the crescendo. Oxytocin's quite clever in that it's involved with labour and delivery, 
um, in the same, which is an enormously painful and difficult process to go through. If you've been through it, you'll know. Um, you kind of get to the end of that, and then this little creature that's caused you <laughs> this this pain and this this hard work. Labor is a real word. Then you know you've got this this the same hormone has this really wonderful kind of almost knock-on effect of encouraging you to bond with that baby. So that sounds a whole lot smarter than a poultry comparison to chickens, pardon the pun. But these hormones aren't just for wanting babies. They're released at any time we see, hear, or feel something something that we like. And if they dial up when we see a baby, it's less to do with the baby and more to do with an evolutionary psychological bias to be drawn to and care for cute childlike things. There's been lots of studies on the brain responses, the hormonal responses to various signs of neoteny, which is childlike things. That's Dr. Gillian Ragsdale. She's a geneticist turned evolutionary anthropologist turned psychology lecturer based Soft, in Cambridge. Soft cheeks and the big eyes and stubby little hands and feet. And there is definitely a biological imperative to do that because obviously it's very useful if people can feel they want to look after small children. I mean, looking after a small baby is really a lot like looking after a helpless old person, but people don't feel like that about old people because they're not cute, sadly for them. Hard as some may try, they're just not as cute as a, as a helpless baby. <laughs> yeah, and even a helpless baby is not as cute as a kitten. Can you imagine? Evolution missed a trick there. If babies were born fluffy like kittens. <laughs> that was an evolutionary step that we should have held on to that first. Oh, we should. Well, it was probably more like... Of all the inconsistencies in the growing area of research into women's reproductive evolution, Gillian is one of few constants. She basically has this whole reproductive evolution thing on lock. And guess what? A lot of it is nonsense. Nonsense and social conditioning. Now, from a simple biological perspective, there's no reason for wanting an infant. No mammal has sex thinking, I want to have an infant mammal. But there is a very strong drive for sex. And because sex is inevitable, until very recently, babies were the inevitable result of sex, there was no selective pressure to have a baby. I mean, I don't think anyone in their right mind thinks that most men, especially, you know, most young men have sex in order to have a baby. Nobody even would think that was a, a sensible question. But with women, of course, they think it is a sensible question, which tells so you a lot So we don't want babies off. or to be mothers as much as we want to have sex because sex feels good. I mean, no one's ever said, yeah, sex is great, but have you ever raised a baby? Being a mother is not as instinctive as hunger or sex. The maternal instinct is a myth cooked up to train women to believe they should be caregivers and to pathologise women who don't want children. Julian says this instinct has been confused with the drive that simply won't kick in without a baby. Like if you were alone on a desert island and somehow managed to raise yourself, you'd get hungry and you might fiddle around to release some sexual urges, but you wouldn't think, hmm, yes, you know what would go nicely with paradise? A mini-me. We like babies basically because we have to, because there are sometimes after effect of sex. But if we lost the dopamine response that tells us sex is good, we'd happily stop doing it and we'd never have babies again. And it's not even really sex that makes us have babies, although the joke will forever be that your younger sibling was a mistake. What makes us have babies, Gillian says... I mean, there's a tremendous amount of social pressure because in some cultures you are nobody. I mean, quite literally, you have no rights. You're kind of like a paid servant to the rest of the family or an unpaid servant to the rest of the family if you don't have children. Also, you you go back 50,000 or 100,000 years, and to be perfectly frank, there were not a lot of career opportunities for women in those days. And most of human history, 
it would have been the central thing that you did and I think in our societies it's actually being relaxed and this is why you're having these conversations there's a lot of talk these days about trying to kick gender roles trying to kick all sorts of kinds of, of some conformity and so you you're seeing in the statistics a lot of women choosing not to have children of course this this demographic transition as we call it actually started about 150 years ago 150 years ago 1870 when the second wave of the industrial revolution was just kicking off suffragettes were picking up pace and civil rights were becoming a more realistic proposition as soon as society seemed to transition at a certain point women just stop having so many children once they basically have education and choice you find that the reproductive rate drops below sustaining levels australia's fertility rate dipped below the 2.1 replacement rate in 1978 and has kept declining since we're currently sitting at 1.66 that means for every viable couple there's only one and a bit children being born according to the bureau of statistics because you know women women don't see it as their job to sustain the human race particularly and that's where we're at with women's options in life expanding and the pre-baby to-do list growing by the day we've now got jobs and education savings to get houses to buy, a love life to have, a social calendar to feel and, of course, travel in between. We're eat, pray, loving our way to a baby much later than our mothers and their mothers did, or not at all. And maybe that's why it sometimes feels like everyone is breathing down our necks to have children, because we're taking more time to get to it. And ultimately, Gillian says that's because of a conflict in our legacy drives, what we want to leave behind when we die. Bloodlines just aren't the be-all and end-all of life anymore. Now we want to leave behind work, our ideas, our art, and maybe children, if we get to it. And unless you're absolutely certain you want them, the decision can be seemingly impossible to make. But it is, I think, really genuinely very hard to know how someone's going to feel about something that hasn't happened. Because how you feel about a baby when you're raising a baby doesn't necessarily have much to do with how you felt about it before the fact. Either way, there are plenty of women who are a bit disappointed, I think, because they've, they've been doing it to conform to a social role. And the chances are that that might not be enough to sustain them in the reality. So the problem is this mismatch between the before and the after story. Which way is it going to go? How can you know? That's the million dollar question, Gillian. And I don't know. And unfortunately, there's no switch, as Sarah said. The brain doesn't have switches typically where things get flicked on and flicked off, because that's not what happens in humans. We have far more influences over how we think and act and feel and behave. There's no surefire way to know unless you've always just known. And even then, you don't really know because as anyone will tell you, you really know nothing. And you can't dictate the rules of the tea party of life with an actual human the way you did with your toy dolls as a kid. Mothers are the only ones who know. All the tea about motherhood. Let's get into it. Do it. (laughs) I have a baby here, so if I have to, like, get a sneaky biscuit to keep him quiet... That's fine. It's all part of the experience. Paw Patrol's on, so it should be good. (laughs) Meet Hannah. We went to high school together, even shared a few classes, and she's now a single mother of a very cute two-year-old boy named Jude. Is it close enough? Yeah, close enough. Okay, so I'm nervous. That's my grandmother Gloria, or June as she always goes by. She has his mothering thing down pat. My first child was born on the 17th of August, Uh 1960, uh, at Tamora Hospital, I weigh nearly seven pound, I think. It's going back too far, I can't remember. How's that? Yeah, that's good. And then there's my mother. You've so already met her. You've been a mother for 25 years. What's life as a mother like? I wouldn't want my life any other way. You realise that I'm not paying you to talk it up. You can. <laughs> no, I love my children 
and I'm so I feel so blessed that I've been able to have three beautiful children. Now, these are the three women I wanted to speak to as soon as I started this podcast. Hannah, especially, because she was one of the few people from my high school whose pregnancy announcement, a Facebook status in classic zillennial fashion, actually shocked me. And it wasn't just the fact that she was pregnant. I mean, I'm at an age where every other day someone is announcing a pregnancy, an engagement, a new job, a house, a dog. It was the mystery surrounding it, because as far as I knew... Hannah didn't have a boyfriend. Can you tell me the the story of how Jude came to be? Oh boy, here we go. Um, very casual with like relations. Um, on and off for probably about 10 or so months. And then fell pregnant. It wasn't very, it wasn't serious. And he was very adamant not to be involved. And I was fine with that. I gave him a choice. And yeah. I have a baby. While it's fine now, it started out as the nightmare that every dating woman has when something very casual goes from stroll to baby stroller in the blink of an eye. And on some level, Hannah says she knew she was pregnant but was swimming in denial. Now, I had just lost like 45 kilos, so nothing was regular. I was like, it's fine, da-da-da-da. And then my boss was like, you need to go take a test. You're like a month late. So she went and bought me. I was like craving like finger buns, like Brumbies, like ice little donuts. That's all I want to eat. And so she went and got me a pack of those in a pregnancy test. <laughs> I was like, go do this. And I was like, okay. So she's at work. Her boss buys her a pregnancy test and a pastry and she goes on a break. Took the test and didn't look at it. I just put it straight in my bag and just sat for a sec. Because I think on like some level I knew, but was just like avoiding it. Had a look. Was like, oh, shit, there's two lines. Shook it like surely not. Oh no! Walked back to work. Apparently, white as a ghost. And my boss was like, "Oh my god, you are, aren't you?" And I was like, "I couldn't like make words leave my body." Hannah may have been stunned, but she says somehow she just knew what she was going to do. I went and got like, funnily enough, I went and bought pregnancy vitamins. So I think in my brain, I just kind of knew what I was going to do. Apparently just knowing is a thing that even if it's a surprise, you just, well, you know. Did you know that you always wanted to have kids? Yes, I certainly did. I grew up with a big family and I always wanted to have two or three children and end up having four. There was uh, quite a group of people around the same age as myself and Clary. Clary was grandma's husband for 53 years and he was my pop for 14 of those. And... Everyone seemed to be having a child and then the next thing you knew somebody else was having a child and I don't know that we necessarily intended to have four children. You weren't actually planning on having another one after we Robert? Weren't, well, we, well, whether it was going to happen or not, we didn't. But, see, we didn't use contraceptives. Oh, OK. It was just a matter of that uh, Clary knew what he was doing at the time. And, yeah. It was the 1960s after all, and not to simplify it too much, but getting married and having children were just something you did as a woman back then, especially one living in rural Australia. Do you remember what it felt like when you found out that you were pregnant? Very excited. Yeah? Yeah, we didn't have any problem having children. I think uh, the old saying was that your husband nearly walked past the bed with his... Uh, undies off and you knew that you were going to fall pregnant. Oh my god! <laughs> that was an old saying back then. I don't know that it, that wasn't really true but that's the, a bit of a saying. That's a visual. Oh no, I don't even know. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> but it's not always as easy as your partner walking past the bed with his underwear off and sometimes it takes a little bit more to get the child you want. 
I did have problems falling pregnant and I that distressed me quite a lot because I thought, oh my goodness, I'm never going to be a mum because that's something I always wanted to have was children. So what did it feel like when you did fall pregnant? Overjoy. I was just so elated. I was just the best thing that could have happened. Mum always just knew. Even as a young girl, the eldest of her generation, she quickly became the default babysitter at family events. I guess there was always, always babies around from when we were very young. Yep. And I just loved being around kids and around babies. And when, when there'd be a family gathering, it was just so good to be with all the babies and nursing them and burping them and... So you were the babysitter. I just love doing the babysitting. I can remember an auntie and uncle who come to town, and I, their youngest son, they'd drop him off up at our house during school holidays, and I was, I just thought I was such an important person because I got to babysit my youngest cousin. <laughs> but she had to wait until she was nearly 33 to have her first child. And we'd been trying to have children for probably up to two years, and I'd had a few miscarriages, and had to go to a gynecologist and. Within three three months of that, I fell pregnant. And that was a long-term pregnancy, so I got my little baby boy. This woman loves babies. Her whole face lights up when she talks about them. Not just her three children, literally any baby. She's the kind of person who'll start a conversation with a complete stranger in the street just to ask about the baby they're carrying. So maybe that's genetic and somehow she's passed that trait to me. And maybe that's actually why this whole thing started. Yeah, did you, did Nan ever sort of say... Well, because you were so late, like, falling pregnant, did you feel like you were, like, falling behind everyone else? You do get that sort of a feeling. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever worry that because I'm 23, potentially single, <laughs> that I'm either not going to give you grandkids or, like, fall behind everyone else? No, I'll give you until 30 and then I'm going to, you know, say to you, please start freezing your eggs, you know, sperm donors, whatever you want to do. Oh, my goodness. Um, I've got two brothers, so I can work on them as well. I do have two brothers and you do apply a little bit of pressure to them, but... While at the moment it's all jokes and tongue-in-cheek comments about needing a sperm donor or freezing my eggs when I turn 30, you can see why I wouldn't want to let her down or disappoint her if I decided not to have children. And it's not entirely her fault that I feel the pressure because I know she actually wouldn't care at all if I did or did not have them. She told me as much. Plus, like she said, I've got two brothers to fill the grandchildren gap. But still, there just seems to be so much more pressure on me and my little ovaries to get producing when I'm neither here nor there. And I don't even know if I can. And that's another thing to factor in. Plus, having children has never been a top priority for me the way it was for mum or grandma. They were stay-at-home mothers. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not saying they lack ambition because they're some of the most determined women I know. But I can't see myself giving up everything I've worked for so far to do what they've done. We lived in, a, in an era, era where money wasn't everything. You, you battled on, you did everything day by day, and you made... If, I don't think you'd call them sacrifices. You just did what you had to do. Mm. And I don't believe it's a sacrifice. That's interesting, yeah, because a, a lot of people say that they don't want kids... Or if they're not having kids, it's because a life without kids affords them more freedom. But yeah, that's right. So I'm supposing sacrifice in the sense of you have to sacrifice maybe like a personal pursuit. A, like a that if you wanted to go work or yeah. get into a career full time or go yeah. and do study, yeah. but was that an option for no, you? No, I, I felt I was always going to be 
a farmer's wife, and a farmer's wife was one to be there when your husband come home from work, be there when he went for work, be there when the kids come home from school, be there to get them to school. And I would not have called it a sacrifice to me because I think that that I knew from possibly the, the minute that, oh, well, even before I was married, I knew that was what my life would be, my lifestyle would be. Is that because it's just where you grew up and it was just, yeah, just, the, way it just was. the way it was? Yeah, just the way it was. Whether it's just the way it was or you've actually had to go the extra mile to have a baby, you've made that choice and you're probably happy in that decision because it's what you wanted. But what about when it sprung on you? What about young mothers like Hannah? I mean, I thought we were the same, independent women, studying, working, dating, thriving in our 20s. And she says we were, we still are. But being a mother has given her an extra drive she didn't have before. But I think like I always felt like, do you want kids? Do you want kids? And I was like, no. God, no. You always hear like these horror stories of motherhood. and But once you've got that baby, you're just like, got to do it. That's how it is. I have more drive now because he needs like the best life possible. Obviously, now you've got Jude. What was? Can you describe what it was like the first time you held Jude? Oh my god, it's so crazy! Like when you're pregnant, like your whole time, like you're kind of worried, like how am I going to cope? How am I going to do this? But the second that baby's like put on your chest, like skin to skin, everything just clicks. It just makes sense. It's just like an instant like love at first sight. He was placed, put on my chest. He was cleaned up, and he was just so beautiful. I was like, oh, my baby. It's like instant euphoria. Like, it's crazy. Could you imagine life without Jude now? God, no. 100% no. They become your entire world and it's so special. Ugh, babies. They're one hell of a drug. And while I'm not ready to give up my ambitions for prams and papooses and Paw Patrol, I kind of want to know what would happen if I was pregnant. How would the mothers in my life react? I would think, first of all, I'd think, goodness me. And then I would think, I think Georgina will make a really good mother and I hope that, I would just say, you know, if you'll always have help, your mother and father would be there and I'd be there as well. Oh, that would make you get all choked up. That's so sweet. (laughs) (laughs) How do you know that I'll be a good mother? (laughs) Well, I think it's called something in your genetics. I was going to say your genes, but people wear genes. <laughs> I think, go back to Grandma Cook. My nan's mother. Nana Smith. My nan. Nana Block. Grandma's mum. Grandma Noah. She's either talking about herself or her husband's mother, but let's give her the credit. I think you'd find, I think you'd be able to make a good mother. And if I told you that I wasn't going to have kids? I would say that's your choice. Maybe I'd quite feel a bit disappointed because I think having grown up with a big family I think that it would feel possibly unusual for somebody to say that they didn't want children but I would go along with the fact that if if that was your choice or if that's what your body wouldn't allow you to have children I think I'm not a religious person, but I think that's God's way or nature's way or whatever it is, yeah. Oh, jeez, Grandma, I didn't expect to cry. (laughs) She's soft. (laughs) At the time, I had no idea why I cried. And just between us, I did blame it on the hormones again. Sorry, Sarah. 
But now I think I know exactly why. For one, because grandma is a mother and a half. And for her to give me a verbal tick of approval, even by patting herself on the back in the process, means the world. I think it's also because of that legacy drive, not only to continue the family name, but also knowing how ridiculously happy my parents would be if I did have a child is enough to crack my staunchly no baby policy heart. But perhaps most of all, it's because I've internalised a lot of the messaging that motherhood is the ultimate goal for women. And in some subconscious way, maybe I do feel the need to conform and have children. Maybe no matter how Destiny's child independent woman I claim to be, maybe I do deep down know the answer. And maybe it's not what I think it should be. But maybe it's not because it's a question of whether I should have children. But her affirmation, even if it's just lip service, eases any subconscious fears I have about whether or not I should be a mother. Because anyone can have a child, but not many people can be a mother. And there are some really great mothers out there, and I have plenty in my life. Whether they always wanted to have a child, they were surprised into it, they were raising someone else's, or anything in between. Being a mother isn't the same straightforward definition it used to be. So maybe I'm not feeling clucky. Maybe I am. Maybe I'll never know. Maybe I'll agonise forever about the what-if and imagine a million different scenarios. Or maybe that's just the way it's meant to be. Asking questions, planting seeds, being so completely unsure about what you're doing until you're there, in your future, and you look back to see all the doors you went through to get where you are. And I think I'm okay with that, even if we're starting back at square one. Can I say hi to Jude? Oh my gosh, I would love to. Jude! I say hi! Hello! Hi! Oh my gosh, he's so adorable. Aren't you cute? Hello, Jude. You are an absolute little cutie. Oh my gosh. You go, Jude. Jude. You go. You're so cute. You're a podcast star. You're an absolute treasure, Jude. All right. Thanks. So bye. Bye bye. Clucky is a podcast written, produced, and performed by me, Georgina Nowak. The wonderful theme music is by Misty Miller. Insight and support for this episode came from Lee Redfern and the small but mighty army of podcast producers and media makers at the University of Sydney. If you like this episode or you got something out of it, please share it with a friend or on social media. And sure, while you're at it, why not tag the podcast at Feeling Clucky Pod? This is somewhat ironically my baby independent project, so any and all support means the world. Please rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on your favourite listening platform.